Welcome to Common Ground, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in Berlin and beyond. I'm senior producer Dina El-Sayed. This week's episode features the conclusion of a special town hall Common Ground co-hosted with the German Marshall Fund of the United States about the future of Afghanistan once Western troops leave in the coming months. The recent event featured aid workers and analysts on three continents who spoke via Zoom about what's in store for civil society and Afghan women. They stand to lose the most if the Taliban return to power. Common Ground host Soraya Sarhadi Nelson brings you excerpts from the town hall and interviews from Kabul. She also reveals some of her own key moments in Afghanistan as a correspondent for the Los Angeles Times and later NPR. Let's begin. Welcome to part two of this special Common Ground episode. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and the first time I went to Afghanistan was in late 2001, when I was an L.A. Times correspondent. I was the first foreign woman to arrive in the western Afghan city of Herat, a day after the Taliban were driven out by U.S. forces and local resistance fighters. I didn't see many Afghan women during those early days, other than the occasional burqa-clad figure who would nervously scurry out of sight. Misogyny had been a cultural norm in Afghanistan long before the Taliban, and I knew the toughest task facing aid workers bent on transforming the country would be to help its women. During my first trip, a warlord in Herat bragged to me about his plans for organizing elections. He scoffed when I asked whether women would get to vote. Two decades later, women are still struggling for basic rights in Afghanistan. During the town hall, I asked Almut Vilan Karimi whether Americans and Europeans can claim their mission in Afghanistan had been successful. By way of background, Almut is the executive director of the Center for International Peace Operations and also works with an Afghan-German NGO called Mediotake Afghanistan. For sure, militarily, this war against terror has not been won. I mean, more than half of the country is in the hand of the Taliban that were declared the enemies or the host of al-Qaeda in 2001. Uh, So for sure, militarily, the war has not been won. But for sure, the country has changed. One of my colleagues has mentioned that if you come to the cities, especially the cities in Afghanistan, 20 years later, I mean, it's a total change. I remember I've first been there in December 2001, and I've been back there last year. I mean, it's like a totally different city, Kabul, and the same applies to Herat or Mazar or Jalalabad. There's education, there is uh, access to health. Um, I mean, there's courageous women, there is, I mean, this sort of living, it's a society that the people go out and stuff. But of course, in the rural areas, not much has changed as compared to 20 years ago. But of course, Afghanistan is a totally different place. And there are institutions and there are success stories. So um, if you especially look at the level of education, it has been a lot of gains and a lot of progress, and we shouldn't forget that. But of course, it's, it's only in the middle of the way, and therefore that's the reason why Afghanistan does need support. Support with regard to development and support with regard to humanitarian aid. So, I mean, there is no easy yes or no answer, but I can for sure say that in the civil spheres or in the political spheres, there has been a lot of progress and hopefully we as an international community can still support Afghanistan for the coming years. And it's not only speeches by politicians, but uh, it's a sustainable promise. 
The next question went to Kathy Gannon. She's the highly influential news director for the Associated Press in Afghanistan and Pakistan, who is also the author of I is for Infidel, From Holy War to Holy Terror, 18 Years Inside Afghanistan. Kathy said European and U.S. officials have a lot to think about when it comes to Afghanistan. The international community has to do a real soul searching over what has gone on in the last 20 years and to really try to understand what was the agenda of the international community. And for Afghans, one of the things, Raya, that I would like to say is that people who never left Afghanistan, um, they were there during Najib, the Mujahideen, the Taliban, and now are leaving, are trying to leave if they can. These aren't people with lots of money. And I think that for me is um, is something that we really have to look at, uh, look at the corruption, look at the, um, the way that the aid was given and how it was given and what was the agenda really of the international community over the last 20 years in terms of who are the power brokers today and, and what do they uh, what do they bring to the table? And there are tremendously brave women and courageous Afghan women who have been the most vocal and have been ignored largely, certainly at the beginning when their voices should have been heard. They were actually threatened and uh, had their voices been, been heard and listened to in 2002, 2003, um, it might be a very different Afghanistan today. Uh, you've had billions of dollars in, in that country and the poverty, 54% of the country is living at uh, below poverty level. Kathy has also extensively covered the peace talks. Do I think the civil society is involved enough in the negotiations? Um, there's certainly some very powerful and strong civil society members on the negotiating team for the government. Um, I think there should probably be more women and uh, ways of having those voices, those women's voices heard and um, given special prominence. And, and I'm not sure that that's been really tried hard enough among those who are putting together the negotiating team. I mean, you see these meetings of all these people at the palace and they're all really basically these warlords that were from uh, before and they're all kind of coming together to say, you know, here's what we want for tomorrow. Well, okay, they're the powerful ones and, and that's, that's who's been given the power. But I guess um, the civil society, the women have to be, uh, maybe have to outnumber those and I'm not so sure that's gonna happen. I also spoke with Fulbright scholar Mitra Mehran, a social entrepreneur who advocates for women to be included in the peace talks. She said it was clear from the beginning that Afghan women being heard were mainly from elite echelons of Kabul society. She's actively trying to rectify that. No matter what woman and from which province of Afghanistan, from very rural areas, maybe they are more conservative than I am, but believe me, all of them believe that their fundamental rights, including right to education, political participation, right to work, economic independence, having access to justice when they are when they are beaten by their husband, they want that. As you can hear, the Zoom connection to Kabul was pretty dismal, so I'll paraphrase her comments. Mitra said the situation of women in Afghanistan has improved thanks to civil society and humanitarian efforts. Schools, clinics, and midwives are found even in remote areas in the country. She added that civil society is becoming more inclusive and reflects traditional structures like village councils or shuras, which understand local needs. But Mitra said there is also a potential danger as to who winds up benefiting. For the peace process, inclusion and everything is important, but it's also important that we, um, that we see that the mullah in the province um, 
or the Taliban leaders have a lot of economic gains and then how the regional politics here is working too. So I think for the for the civil society part or inclusion of local leaders, that, that is something important to consider too. Meanwhile in Kabul, many international aid workers said that despite the uncertainty of a post-NATO Afghanistan, they won't pull up stakes. One aid worker is a former British commando who works with the city's stray animals. Hey guys, hello. I'm Penn Farthing, I'm the founder and CEO of the Nauzad Veterinary Clinic here in Kabul, Afghanistan. And I'm proud today to be with Dr. Sara, one of our female veterinarians here at the clinic. Hello, I'm Dr. Zahra Nasri, and I'm a veterinarian in Nauzad organization. Penn, how have you changed your program this past year given the increasing violence? So far, Nauzad has not actually changed any of our policies regarding obviously the increased security risks that are happening here in Kabul and across the wider regions. Um, Nauzad's always operated with security in the back of our minds. Um, and our job must go on. Animals still need the support and the help. So our team, although we're aware of it, we've continued to operate just the same. Dr. Sara, why have you decided to work at Nauzad and how does your family feel about what you do? Uh, because Nauzad organization is the only official organization that works for animals in Afghanistan and want to make a difference for Afghan communities. So that's why I, want to, I wanted to join a Nauzad organization and work for animals. And also uh, my family encouraged me, always encouraged me to work for animals. Penn, will you stay on in Kabul once the Western troops leave the country? Um, yes, I will be staying on here in Kabul once all Western troops pull out. Um, so will Nauzad as an organisation. For the last two years, Western troops haven't patrolled on the ground here in Afghanistan. All the security has been provided by either the Afghan army or by the Afghan police. What we are concerned about for the future is whether, obviously, Ashraf Ghani's government can stay on their own and they've got the ability and the leadership to actually continue running Afghanistan without the presence of Western troops. But that's something we'll have to see in due course. So for now, Nauzad won't go anywhere. We just will be more aware of the security risks um, that might be out there on the streets when we're doing our animal rescues. What is your biggest fear if Taliban ends up becoming part of the Afghan government? Uh, there are a lot of fears that the Afghan females uh, have with, their, with themselves. Uh, but the, one, uh, the biggest one is uh, that the Taliban uh, will not let uh, the females uh, that work uh, outside at home. Uh, but uh, we, are, uh, we will uh, fight uh, against uh, with this uh, situation and we will continue uh, to working uh, outside at home. I asked Marina Kilpinski-Legree why Westerners heading NGOs in Afghanistan are willing to stay after NATO troops leave. She's the founder and CEO of Ascend, a nonprofit organization that trains Afghan girls to be leaders through mountain climbing and community service. One of Marina's climbers became the first Afghan woman to summit her country's highest mountain, Noshak, which straddles Pakistan's border at 24,580 feet, or 7,492 meters. I think Penn said it in that video that we're aware of these circumstances, we're concerned, but our work has to go on regardless of 
the political ups and downs and particularly when security takes a bad turn, then we have to think about pausing operations or changing one thing or another, but the mission has to go on. Girls and women's rights are not going to be resolved if we all pull up stakes and head out. It's a long-term problem and will be there for a very long time. We have to be prepared to be quite patient that there will be gains and then sometimes there will be losses, but uh, we're prepared to stick it out for the long haul. Uh, and, and we do see, to answer your question, sorry, um, there are some who are, are leaving certainly, but mostly I think civil society is like us, we stick around, that is the point. Um, and I think with government funding, that's different. There's a vulnerability there. And if certain foreign policy objectives are not achieved then funding can be pulled and things can change. But uh, most of us who are small and who are uh, long-term, we're not going anywhere. We're just waiting and seeing. Let's check in with Dina. Um, I see lots of questions popping up on the Q&A. Are there a few questions that you can share with us from the audience? Yes, there are quite a few questions. Let me share one from Karen Johnston, who asks, as mentioned, Afghanistan is dependent on continued humanitarian assistance. How does the Taliban view these international aid organizations and NGOs? Will they refuse to permit them to operate in Afghanistan once they are in power, or are they willing to allow external assistance to continue? Who would like to take that? I'm sorry, Mitra, do you want to try? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, so okay. uh, the speaker of the Taliban announced uh, that they will make sure to provide security and take the security of all diplomatic missions, humanitarian aid and development projects in Afghanistan. Um, uh, I think that was following the announcement from Australian embassy that for security reasons they are leaving. Which went viral on social media, Mitra said. She explained that Afghans complained about Australia pulling its embassy staff out of Kabul, accusing it of caring only about foreign lives and not about the Afghans left behind in a war that the West started. She added that the Taliban want international and humanitarian aid to continue if they end up governing. They had an article, I don't know where, in foreign policy or in Washington Post or something, but they had the letter that they sent to the Biden administration. They said that we respect the right of women in civil society in Afghanistan, but they never have been clear what they mean by respecting women's rights. Um, they have said within the Islamic structure, but we are now uh, believe that we are Muslim and our rights are respected within Islamic structures in Afghanistan. But they have felt, or not maybe felt, they purposefully have uh, avoided uh, giving clarity on what they mean by it. Dina, um, we have time for one more. We're running a little tight on time here. So let's ask one more question now. We'll try to get another one at the end. But yeah, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get to all of the audience questions. Sure. There is a question from Cindy Theboid. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly again. It's for Mitra in particular. Presuming you're familiar with the Ascend program, how much risk do you feel the girls are taking by participating in the program, and especially as they've been speaking out more on videos posted on the Ascend website, etc.? She says she is familiar with the program and she really appreciates Marina's comments, uh, but also wondering about Mitra's thoughts based on her perspective. Um, fortunately, I want to say what's happening with Ascent that shows um, women's participation and activity in different um, parts of life in Afghanistan, including sports, health, education. Um, that is very common now. Mitra said that targeted killings carried out by the Taliban aren't aimed at a specific activity like mountain climbing or journalism. Instead, the violence is designed to generate mass fear, which empowers the insurgents. 
That doesn't mean mountain climbers don't need to be careful or sensitive to cultural norms in the areas they go on expeditions, Mitra added. I asked Marina to respond. Sure, I would just add that um, the scene has changed dramatically since I started Ascend in 2000. At the end of 2014, we were very concerned about repercussions against our girls, but sports organizations have proliferated. And as Mitra says, there are all kinds of different women taking risks in different fields and the Taliban target them for different reasons. And so far we don't have a reason to feel that we would specifically be targeted. Um, that can change at any time and it depends on the individuals who are part of the program. But uh, we're, I guess the good news is that we are now part of a crowded field. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear from an Afghan woman who risks her life doing what women elsewhere take for granted. Stay tuned. Hi, everyone. I'm Maurice Frank, editor of the Berliner Zeitung English Edition, which is a proud partner of Common Ground. Is it hard for you to figure out what's going on in Berlin because everything you read or hear is in German? We at Berliner Zeitung English Edition can help, providing you with all the news you can use in English, whether on politics, business, or culture. We also offer riveting interviews and commentary. Look for us at berliner-zeitung.de slash en, or just type in Berliner Zeitung English Edition into your search engine. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, the host of Common Ground. And I'm Dina El Sayed, the senior producer. Each week, we bring you a new lively discussion on a hard hitting topic. If you want to learn more about our podcast, check out our website at commongroundberlin.com. The episodes are free to download, but they aren't free to create. Common Ground depends on grants as well as donations from listeners like you. So if you want to help us out, please click on the donate button at commongroundberlin.com. And thanks for listening. Democracy. I'm Rachel Tausendfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. Welcome back to Common Ground and the conclusion of a recent town hall we co-hosted with the German Marshall Fund about the fate of civil society and women in Afghanistan once NATO forces leave. I am one of the lucky foreign correspondents who managed to travel to every corner of Afghanistan. It helps that I am fluent in Dari and that I look like an Afghan. During these far-flung trips, the people I encountered who I was most in awe of were female students and teachers. They bravely went to school each day despite the real risk of having acid thrown at them or being fatally knifed or shot, as I reported from the southern city of Kandahar in this 2009 story for NPR. In a UNICEF tent, eight-year-old Shazia points to Quranic verses on the chalkboard and reads them aloud for her classmates to repeat as a jet flies overhead. Their teacher is Sedirir Rezaei. 
She puts on a brave face for the children, but inside, she, like most teachers, is frightened. It's very unsafe in the city. Every time you walk to school, you're looking behind your back to see if a motorcycle is following you. Her worry is more common now, given the prospect of the Taliban returning to power. We spoke to a teacher in Kabul last month at a school for children with special needs about that eventuality. A video of the interview was played during the town hall. It's been a year that I've worked at the Fatima Khalil School. This new school is the first school in Kabul and all of Afghanistan that teaches children with special needs. And the goal of this school is to help transform these children so they can become part of society and be self-sufficient and live and work independently. We believe that having special needs doesn't mean you can't do things. Have you had to limit the way the school works in any way this last year because of the growing insecurity? It's only been a year since we started our activities and we had security measures in place. But in this time, when the situation is not that good, we've increased our safety measures, including training on how to take care of the children and ourselves during an emergency. Do you have any concerns regarding your students and the teachers' future if the Taliban becomes a part of the Afghan government? Of course people are worried, especially those of us who are women, and because I got an education here, and given my goal is to help my society and my generation, and to help people in need, perhaps my activities will become limited. One other concern I have is to keep the school for children with special needs a space for peace and happiness. Our worry is especially for female students in our program. Will they be able to continue to do their art activities or not? I asked Atia Abawi whether she thinks female students and teachers will be able to continue once the NATO forces leave. Atia is a children's author who was an award-winning CNN and NBC correspondent in Afghanistan. I do envision it continuing for the time being, at least. Um, Again, you know, it's unknown what the future holds, and I think the Afghan people feel the same way. I think the Afghans themselves, the government, the security forces, uh, they're going to do their best to maintain this. Um, I think the fear is, as Mitra John pointed out, that the Taliban haven't clarified their stance on women, but time and time again, they have said that they believe in Islamic law and their laws have not changed much from pre-2001. So the fear is that these gains are fragile gains and they've been fantastic gains. Um, You know, we've seen a generation of children, women who have grown up um, and have done amazing things for their country. Um, And we're seeing schools like this and it's just absolutely beautiful. But the fear is the fear of the unknown of how much say that the Taliban will have and just really what's going to happen. I, I would like to say that, yes, this will continue. And it, I do believe it will continue for the time being. And I do think that the Afghan people um, have a lot of strength and a lot of will to make it continue. Um, as you know, Soraya, you worked in Afghanistan. The Afghan people there have seen so much um, and they've continued to survive. And they've seen a lot of changes in the last 20 years, ups and downs. And they have been 
that change. By that, I mean, they have made those changes. It, it wasn't just help from the international community. Yes, they had that help, but it's the will of the Afghan people there who are making these changes and they have the will to continue uh, this. Uh, but again, the fear is the unknown. Well, let me ask a quick last question of all of you. And I would ask that you keep your answer as short as possible so we can get everyone in. And then at the end of that, if there's still a couple minutes left, we'll take one or two more audience questions. But basically, what is the most important thing that you think needs to happen for Afghan civil society to continue after Western troops lead? And we'll start with Almut. I think what is the most important is the commitment of Afghan civil society. And I've seen it a lot. I mean, Afghan women, Afghan men, the young generation. And I have to say, I mean, I would uh, underline everything Atia has just said, but uh, I'm also hopeful because it's such a young society. I mean, the average Afghan is younger than 18 years old. So they have their whole future. So for sure, they want to have perspectives and they want to have perspectives in their own country as well. So what I really see as the most important factor is the commitment of civil society in Afghanistan by the Afghans. And for sure, it would need the international support and it would need a focus on a peace process because this peace process will take years, if not decades. And I mean, civil society only has a chance to do its work if there's no war. If there's war in Afghanistan, it would be really difficult. So for on the one hand side, it's really commitment by the Afghan civil society. And I'm really hopeful for that because there's so many great people. Uh, the secondly is international support. It will be there, but I'm sure on a much lesser level than it is there today. Uh, not from today until tomorrow, but it will for sure decrease in the future, the level of financial support also for development and humanitarian aid. And thirdly, I mean, there should be an international push for this peace progress and it should not only be regional actors in the US, but many others should get involved. And as I said earlier, only an inclusive peace will be a sustainable peace in Afghanistan. Therefore, everyone is needed. Kathy, what do you think? Um, yeah, um, I think uh, peace for the civil society, um, um, support from the international community, that they know that they're not alone uh, is very important. And um, a real um, look at the corruption and uh, some of the players that uh, the international community has some control over to try and, and, and ensure that they don't create a chaos that will hinder the civil society as well. So uh, big one, no peace. Eleonard Sino answered next. She is the Afghanistan country director of the Konrad Adenauer Foundation, which works to help establish a democratic state based on the rule of law and to support the development of the country's economic system. I see the main accomplishment and also the accomplishment that I see mostly at risk um, when we have a Taliban government is um, the free and pluralist um, freedom of speech and media landscape, which is really unique compared to all neighbor countries, compared to South Asia and Central Asia. And um, this very free political debate culture, which could be uh, lost if we have a more authoritarian or Taliban government. And this is, I think, the main accomplishment of the last 20 years. Marina? So this was a all women panel and I'll just bring it back to the, the female perspective where I think it's so important to 
move away from the framing of Afghan girls and women as victims and treat them as allies and use networks and the commitment that Almut uh, mentioned, that there has to be that commitment and it has to be that we see Afghan women and girls as equal to women and girls anywhere in the world. And thus it's not, it's not something that can be forgotten if foreign policy objectives change. And that's part of Asan's mission is to create some sort of hope and inspiration amongst Afghans, these very young people. And so we'll continue to do that, but also to portray women and girls as what they are, strong and not just victims. Atia, you're next, and then we'll go to Mitra. Uh, I'm curious to know, Mitra will probably have the best answer since she's the Afghan woman living in Afghanistan, but I wanna stick with commitment, unbiased commitment. Um, by both uh, people in power in Afghanistan, as well as the international community. Um, and I go back to my point that I made earlier, is that the international community has a history of letting the Afghan people down. Um, and I hope that the international community does not make that mistake again. And by that, I mean the international governments. I respect the NGOs so much for continuing their commitment throughout all these troubles. Mitra John, do you want to add something quickly before we, we try to want to take one more question if we can from the audience? They've been so patient. Yeah, sure. Thank you. I think um, from my experience with Feminine Perspectives campaign, that I owe um, my experience and my understanding of Afghan women in local areas to that campaign too is it's not only few women we see in media or in Kabul, it's uh, even in the remotest area. Um, they now have um, believed in certain values in, in protection of their fundamental rights and their human rights. I think they are fighting for their children to not suffer the experiences of the life um, or the limitations they did. That's the first thing. For me, it's two scenarios. If we get to a political settlement with Taliban, I think the reconciliation process will be a good space for civil society for us to work at the local areas and make sure that a lot of values are institutionalized in Kabul go to uh, local areas. Um, and then we may negotiate a political structure that we are respected in Taliban is respected too, and a, uh, an Islamic structure that is more moderate and respect values of freedom of speech, um, civil activism in that. And the second scenario, which is a more stressful and frightening for me, is we do not get to a political settlement and the insecurity intensifies that well, that war will be more um, worse in, in local areas and that would again um, affect women in rural areas and would limit the, um, the activism and activities of civil society. Um, so that's why I wanna uh, be hopeful and use diplomacy, if not military means, to push parties uh, to get a political settlement. That is what I'm hopeful for. But I would love uh, people to listen to stories of women um, from very remote areas. You may cannot see their face, um, but I see hope in that, and I think that deserve our work and commitment and advocacy. Great. Dina, do you have a quick question that you can, uh, from the audience, something that can be answered fairly quickly, because uh, we do have to get offline here. Yes, there is a question that looks into the future from Karen Castellon. She asks, who or what organization would lead that soul searching we talked about earlier? Who would like to take that? I'll add something quickly, just that we mentioned the youth, right? Where the girls who are now under 18 or who are 20, they are not all going to be leaving Afghanistan. And I think we need to think about the future and what avenues we're providing to girls that can take those seats at the table and that can be those advocates. Marina's comments concluded the town hall, which was recorded on May 27th. 
Thank you for listening to this edited version of the event. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Common Ground is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Thank you also to our partners, the Berliner Zeitung English Edition and the German Marshall Fund. You can download all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com.